Kia ora and welcome to Beyond Consultation, a podcast that will help you in your public or community sector work to increase your impact by doing more than just ticking the box of consultation. I'm Paul McGregor from Business Lab, and we're interested in the mindsets and methods of people who are making a bigger impact by working collaboratively with communities, industries, and other organizations. Ma mihi mote Kia and welcome to episode 14 of Beyond Consultation. Now, sometime in the next week, I can almost guarantee you will be in a meeting and somebody will use the word co-design because the hype about co-design has definitely been on the rise. And, you know, it's the set of methods, principles, mindsets for solving some of the trickiest problems that we face as a species. Now, your experience with co-design might follow a similar pattern that I see happening a lot. You attend a workshop where somebody uses these really engaging visual tools to facilitate. There's post-it notes, maybe there's Play-Doh, there's Lego, there's music. It's got this great vibe and you leave feeling really energized and buzzed. And you ask the person, yeah, what is this? And they tell you, oh, this is co-design. And so you go back home and you Google this and you find this toolkit of methods showing you how to do co-design and you start to apply it to your work. But something falls a little bit flat. And after a while, you're not really sure if you're doing this whole co-design thing or not. And it's just not as effective as you hoped it would be. And I have to say that was my initial experience with co-design and today's guest shares an even more intense first experience that they had where the group rejected the co-design methods that they were proposing in the middle of the workshop and said no we don't need you as a facilitator we're going to do this ourselves. So that started them on the path to learning about some of the less obvious parts of co-design beyond just the nice shiny looking sticky notes but exploring things like power and privilege, care and hospitality. And then after about a decade of practicing out in the community, they've pulled everything they've learned together into a book which is called Beyond Sticky Notes. And so that was how I got in touch with Kelly Ann McKercher through their book. And I think it's one that I can see myself returning to time and time again. Every time I pick it up, I'm going to learn something new. So I'm really excited to share this episode with you where we unpack what actually is co-design and how can you do it better. So please welcome to the show, Kellyanne McKercher. What do you think it was from your upbringing that made you interested in design? So I was more interested actually in being a fashion designer or a fine artist and I wasn't really allowed to do that (laughs) from a family perspective. It was sort of seen that I should get a real job of some kind. I studied design and architecture at the start of things and that seemed a little bit more like a real job than Mm. making clothes or doing drawings or paintings, which of course are real jobs too. Mm. But I think probably that craft element of things or the making of things has kind of never gone away (laughs) but it's got replaced by probably some different types of design skills that are more about thinking mindsets conceptual design speculative design etc it's amazing how those influences in your childhood can push you one way or the other 
So yeah, that's cool to hear for you. It's about craft and that's kind of carried through. I was looking back at your LinkedIn profile and it's a bit of a who's who of different type of organizations that do design, you know, from a, a big four accounting firm to smaller tech firms. Um, now you're doing a bit of work in healthcare. What was it along the way you think that were the real big influences on you in terms of how you think about co-design? Mm, I guess there's a couple of projects. So the first one was straight out of university. I worked on a project around the legislative reform of child protection services. And at the time, what I had in my toolbox was kind of like user research, usability, user experience type techniques and tools. And in that particular project, all of those things were wildly insufficient and quite frankly, quite embarrassing that I was sort of showing up to what is a kind of long-term intergenerational there's lots of trauma, both past and present and ongoing. And there's a lot of groups of people who have been working in this space and acting in this space and trying to make change for years and years and years. Mm. And as a sort of impressionable young designer, I was showing up suggesting that like sticky notes and journey maps were going to be helpful. Mm. So that was both like a bit of a wake up call in terms of, I don't quite have the right ways of being or doing. Mm for this type of work, which we might call social innovation work. And at the same time, I also really liked it. I wanted to do more of that type of work and less yeah. commercial design work. I've never yeah. been very excited about that. Okay. So you turn up in this workshop, there's some pretty heavy subject matter and you're suggesting your sticky notes and user journey mapping and that kind of thing. What happened and what did you notice from that experience in particular? Well, what happened was I essentially got told to sit down and stop <laughs> facilitating the workshop because I was doing such a terrible job of it and told that the group was going to reconvene in another forum to have the conversations that needed to be had, which was quite a shock to me at the time that that is a thing that happens. I'd assumed that because the project was contracted at a national level, that that then meant that there was local interest in the project. And I hadn't quite understood that to recontract locally is a necessary thing, even like a social contract of, yes, there's a national project, but am I the right person to be working in this particular place? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that must have been pretty hard on you. I can only assume, you know, you're fresh out of university and really keen and enthusiastic. I've had similar experiences where you've gone in and you've thought that one thing would be the right way to do it. And then the group has just taken you down. How did you deal with that personally? I think I was quite overwhelmed for most of that project and felt a little bit underwater trying to sort of just make my way through. And when you're a consultant, of course, you're focusing on deliverables and doing what was asked of you mm. whilst also trying to navigate around is what has been asked of me ethical and appropriate based on what I now know. Mm. I think I probably wasn't till the end of that project to have a little bit of space to reflect on what has happened, what have I learnt, what will I take forward into mm. projects that have a similar kind of nature and what projects will I just not do because I'm not the right person to be mm. doing them. 
if I get to make that choice. (laughs) Well, thanks for sharing that. And you were about to go through a couple of different experiences that have really shaped you. Are there any others that spring to mind? Yeah, a few years ago, I worked with Simon Harger Ford at Innovate Change that used to exist, but is now joined up with Innovation Unit. And that was also another experience where I still had quite a lot of commercial design mindsets and techniques and hadn't spent much time in the kind of social practice realm of things with folks who have come over from social work, community work, et cetera, to design. Mm. And that was quite an experience of finding out all the things I didn't know and some of the things about the ways I was working that were quite blind to the sort of power and privilege that I have as a person that exists quite high on the sort of matrix of domination as being white and well-educated. And in particular at Innovate Change, we had a few colleagues who were and are Indigenous designers who are practicing in the context of te ao Māori. That was also something that kind of reshaped how I thought about design and became quite critical of where design might be quite a colonizing force as opposed to helpful as I just assumed that it was all the time in all settings. This assumption that design started like at the industrial revolution which of course design practices have been happening for thousands and thousands of years particularly in indigenous cultures and knowledges. So really so kind of arrogant to assume that they started 100, 150 years ago. Some pretty awesome experiences there, sort of expanding your mind about what design might be, what it might do. And then you've been inspired recently to write a book. And I mean, the title of the book, immediately when I saw it, I smiled and and nodded so beyond sticky notes, can you explain a bit about what you mean by that? And, you know, what is the frustration that leads you to writing a book about that? Yes. And I think frustration is a good word alongside hope. Uh, so the frustration of this is that the ways that we're generally thinking and talking about design and participatory design and co-design felt kind of same same but different and really the same old ways of getting together but with slightly different visual supports be they Mm. be poster notes or posters whatever and it didn't feel to me like that was anything particularly transformative or helpful yet across sort of a number of years I'd been in projects and led projects and been part of projects that really took a different and more relational perspective on design processes and practices. And I'd seen all of those things happening, seen what the mindsets were that were at play, seen what types of social movements they might be stewarding or supporting and seen the methods and not seen anywhere that I could find that collated some of those things and and told the story about co-design being a movement, a mindset, and a set of methods. Mm. So it just sort of felt necessary to to collate that and to talk about some of those experiences and to touch on some bodies of knowledge that already exist and some practitioners who have already written about some 
adjacent and connected types of topics. So there's sort of disconnected parts and you kind of wanted to bring it together. And also I wanted to address the temptation to leap straight to the methods. I think we've sort of done ourselves a great disservice in design education that we frame a one day, a two day, a three day intensive around tooling up as opposed to really going quite deep into the how do we show up though in the work and also the the broader context of what are some of the kind of social movements or the social norms that we're looking to change in terms of co-design and those are things like making decisions with people instead of for them or seeing people who are historically underinvested in as resilient and offering contributions as opposed to a kind of burden or a drain on the system. Mm. And at the same time, I 100% can understand why we jumped to the methods. Like my own experience, you know, I didn't train as a designer like you did. So I experienced an amazing co-design process as a participant you know, went straight home onto the internet, co-design, and then you get taken to these toolkits of methods and you just go, great, awesome. Okay, well, if I can just throw these together, then I can do this whole co-design thing. And then, yeah, my first experience of doing that, I'm sort of going through it feeling like I'm missing a whole lot of stuff here. I don't know what I'm missing, but these methods are kind of fun and engaging, but I don't feel like I'm really getting to the heart of things. So... For people who experience that, like, what do you think it is that they're missing beyond the methods? So I think in co-design, there are some ways of being that are fundamentally different to our ways of being in a kind of business as usual, project management, health service planning, law, whatever sort of type of field we're coming from. A lot of the mindsets that we still have within us from those type of fields are things like, parenting people as opposed to partnering with them and wanting people to show up in a particular way so that they're acceptable to us there's a lot of things there around wanting to kind of control everything mm. and to kind of project managementize co-design processes where what co-design is is very much an emergent process and we can have touch points along the way and we have a sense of where we're going but we also have to be willing to be surprised and other disciplines don't necessarily encourage room for surprise or actively dissuade and create techniques to remove surprises altogether. Mm. I think in terms of the mindset side of things, some of the most central ones there, that our commitment to curiosity is not just what we are interested in, but also what other people find interesting and kind of new terrains, new knowledges, new beliefs that we necessarily haven't encountered ourselves but will encounter through a co-design process if we're genuinely kind of open and permeable to what other people believe and think and, and want to change which I think that willingness to be changed is also not something we necessarily practice in disciplines and jobs that are a little more analytical and controlled. Instead often we get taught that your role is to change others so I'm coming into a session and I'm going, well, if I can convince that group over there of this point of view, then everything will be okay. Whereas you're saying, actually, no, you need to come in with the understanding that you may need to change and listen and 
do something or learn something unexpected? I think so. And I also think that there are disciplines that encourage us to focus on, for example, an agenda. And when we go into a workshop with an agenda that we've spent lots of time on, you know, might be quite proud of the activities that we've put together. Sometimes the temptation, if we haven't sort of deconditioned ourselves quite enough, is to get fixated on getting through the agenda and not noticing what is emerging in the group and not mm. noticing that there's conversations that need to be had that we had not planned to be mm. having, that there's contributions that people want to offer, yet we're kind of holding all the space as the, the lead, the convener, the facilitator of that group. Mm. And, and then I think there's other things related to ways of being that are also about, you know, seeing the dignity of everyone in the room or people with lived experience and seeing that it's not our role to collect people's stories and then tell those stories on their behalf, but rather that people have the opportunity wherever they want to and it's it's safe for them to do so to tell their own stories, which is quite a step away from a human-centered design methodology or a user-centered design methodology where designers still hold a lot of the power and responsibility for whose story gets told and in what types of ways. So I'd, I'd love to unpack that a little bit more with you because I know here in New Zealand, we've got a lot of government agencies, for instance, that are talking about co-design. And sometimes what I see is that it's more that human-centered design where, yeah, great, you understand quite deeply what's going on for a group of people, but it's still you as the official who's then going back and sharing that information. So to take it a step further then so that the participants taking ownership and taking those next steps of sharing that experience with the world. Can you talk us through how you might see that working? Yeah, so maybe as a framing thing, I would say that generally there's four levels of design. The, the first level being designing at people, which thank goodness many of us have moved away from that altogether. The next part, designing for people, is kind of your human-centered, patient-centered, user-centered, consultation-based tools and techniques. I think when folks are talking about co-design, what they're usually talking about is designing for, not designing with. And I guess the key differentiator is there's no co-designing without co-deciding. And the, the shared responsibility for decision-making, even if there is constraints in that decision-making, and there often will be, I don't know any design process that doesn't have some constraint of some kind, that is kind of the key difference. So in a human-centered design practice, we go away, we make decisions, we come back to a group of people or individual, and we, we might validate or tweak that. Hmm. In a co-design process, we share all of our decisions or as many decisions as we can with the folks in our kind of small circle with people with lived experience, with professionals, with provocateurs. And what gets made or what gets created at the end of that process might also go on to be co-delivered and co-evaluated, which I think is the continuation of co-design where we're making something together you want to sort of continue that ethic and that value into the delivery, evaluation, monitoring, and learning as well. Mm -hmm. I love that four-part model because I think a lot of people talk about 
doing two, doing four and doing with, but don't then think about the fourth part that you've just mentioned that actually the, what, how does that continue? You know, if you've built all these strong relationships, you trust each other, you understand each other, and then you walk away from that, that's kind of a lost opportunity. It is a lost opportunity and it's also a loss of the contributions that people with lived experience can make when we offer meaningful opportunities Mm. and also when we see that what gets monitored, evaluated should be based on the things that matter to people as opposed to what matters inside of bureaucracy, which Mm. we have a number of kind of KPIs or measures that are incredibly important for the function of businesses and government but they often don't include firsthand what really matters to the people who are intended to benefit from said project program initiative policy whatever one thing this leads me on to is wondering about you talk about getting free labor from the people that you're designing with. So you pull this group together of people who've got lived experience of whatever the the issue is that you're exploring. What advice do you have to people who are thinking, I really want to honor their time, their mana, their experience. How do I do that? Do I bring them on as staff? Do I offer them koha? How does that work? What do you see happening there? So the basic principle here is if we are being paid for our time, then people with lived experience are also deserving of that same payment for their time. Now, there's a number of things that influence this. I guess people's sort of status in the world can play a role, for example, if they may be receiving government payments or welfare payments. There are particular styles of paying people that would interfere or interrupt or be damaging to the payments that they get. There's a number of different ways that we can pay people, be it sort of bringing them on as staff or contractors. We can, if we're allowed to give people cash money, we can offer something by way of exchange. If we have something that is valued, we can offer amazing hospitality, you know, beautiful meals and experiences for folks when they're coming together and I guess the principle is the reciprocity so whatever the reciprocity looks like be it money food time care in some other capacity we do what we can but we also have to challenge this notion that people's lived experience isn't as worthwhile and isn't as important as professional experience Often when we're bringing professionals into co-design, it's already in their job or in their remit to be a part of improvement or innovation. So we're not necessarily paying them for their time, but always seeking to pay people with lived experience in whatever form that payment takes and working with those folks to understand what style of payment will be dignified, wanted, and not interrupt or be damaging to the payments they might be getting. Thanks for explaining that. I love that clarity of that underlying principle, which makes it a lot easier to think, okay, where do we go from here? I can also imagine some people might be listening going, oh my gosh, that's going to be so hard to get through our 
procurement, HR kind of things. One of the other big challenges that I see people have, they're committed to co-designing and they learn about it. Maybe they buy your book and they read your book or they go on a course or whatever it might be. And then they go back into their organization and they're kind of, they're a little bit alone with the knowledge that they have. So I'm interested in your thoughts on how you can strengthen the system around you when you're trying to co-design. So I think that most public sector organizations will have some level of policy guidance about how to pay people for their time when it comes to consultation and co-design. For example, in the health system, there are sort of health consumer forums that regularly publish advice Mm. about what the reasonable and expected level of payment for time and out-of-pocket expenses are. So I think we can reach out of our organizations and look at what the kind of industry standard guidelines and guidance is and use that as a kind of leverage or a form of social proof inside of our organization to say, hey, I'm not making this up. This is a thing. And this is evidenced by a number of other kind of policies and practices in my broader sector. I think we have to get really good, though, at reaching out and into other parts of the system where we see work happening that's of the same value that we want to do and deliberately building those relationships and alliances to elevate the quality of the work, the importance of the work, and join the dots between what's already happening and then what could happen inside the system to strengthen and reinforce that activity over time. We can't wait to be noticed by other practitioners. We sort of have to go out and find those other folks inside the system or even folks who are co-design aware or could be co-design advocates that aren't necessarily practitioners, but also believe that it's important to elevate the voice and the dignity of people with lived experience and can play some kind of role in creating a better authorizing environment for that be it different kinds of policies and procedures inside the organization, different avenues for funding this type of work to happen. But even the mechanics of an organization, so if we're doing business cases, if we're writing project plans, that there are deliberate reminders inside of those things to say, how are we going to design with people? Are we designing at, are we designing for, are we designing with, or are we being led by? So that there's kind of deliberate, prompts and stages inside the machinations of organizations that we can check ourselves about what we're trying to do and how we're going to go about doing it. And so I can imagine that sort of work both within your organization and you're relating to others who are doing similar co-design type work that that's sort of like a slow gradual piece of work that you kind of you never finish and you're always working on trying to improve that. I think in many of our government, non-government, not-for-profit strategies, kind of operational plans, there are often breadcrumbs that can Mm. lead towards co-design work. So I also think it's about looking into those things and seeing where co-design is already mentioned or working alongside people is already mentioned and sort of making the case for change that this way of working is a real and effective and outcome producing way to get towards those strategic objectives or those operational objectives. Mm, Interesting. One other thing I wanted to talk with you 
about power and privilege. You've mentioned that a little bit already. And I love in your book, section one is essentially looking at that. It's not looking at the methods. Can you explain a little bit about what people need to be thinking in terms of power and privilege? Mm. The first thing I guess for us to think about is that there are power differences and there will always be power differences inside of a group of people. And one of the things I think is critical is if we're the convener or if we're the organiser, that we reflect quite deeply on where we are located in that kind of matrix of power and privilege or matrix of domination and have a really strong sense of who am I likely to be in context to the people that I want to work with. So in the book, I describe two sets of questions to start out on a design process or a co-design process. The first one being, is co-design really needed? We know that in lots of contexts, significant work has already been done and often that work is fragmented and it hasn't even reached the stage of insights or actionable insights that people can use. And we also know that often things are sort of done to and for groups of people who already have very clear aspirations about what they want and need, but those things aren't being listened to. Mm. So a co-design process is not necessarily going to help that. Mm. However, if co-design can help and is wanted and is needed, the second set of questions are really about, am I the best person to lead this work? Or my colleagues, the best person to lead this work, people to lead this work. And that's really, I think about looking at what are the, the privileges that have been afforded to me? Are they the same privileges as the people that I'm planning on working alongside? Or would I have so much privilege in comparison to the folks who I'm working with that the power difference will be so large that folks are likely to feel uncomfortable and intimidated, even if I'm a really friendly person? Mm-hmm. I think sometimes this idea of, well, I'm friendly and approachable gets in the way of the... gets in the way of understanding and recognizing that no matter how friendly you are, if you exist with a huge amount more power and privilege than the folks you're working alongside, that that really shuts down people's contributions and sends them into almost like a teacher and student relationship or like a parent and child relationship. Mm. And if you're the convener and you've become the parent or the teacher, people sort of get quite immobilized and they end up being more passive participants than partners in the design process and we we really stop hearing what people actually think and how they actually feel and that's really I guess about creating the conditions for hospitality or the conditions for people to be able to share and ask questions or even say I'm not happy with how this is going or the direction this is heading in so I guess that self-awareness and the understanding of who we are in the world is a core part of knowing where to practice and how to practice and and when it's not the right time and we need to say no that's not work I can do or should do but I know a person who would be much better placed by way of identity to do this work with and for you. Thanks for unpacking that so two key questions when you're thinking about power and privilege setting up the conditions for co-design right at the start is co-design even needed? So that's going to then send you down, okay, well, what else has happened? Um, What's going on here? And then secondly, am I, is our organization, is my team, are we the right people to do this? 
And I know from my own experience of asking that second question, there's not a clear bright line with that either. I've had an experience where I asked that question. I wasn't sure. I talked to lots of people. I came to the conclusion that it was okay. And then I got in there and I was sort of like, no, nah, I've stuffed up. I shouldn't actually have been facilitating this. So yeah, it's a hard question because mm. it requires you to look at yourself quite objectively, but also there's no clear answer sometimes. I think it also though encourages us to think about if we have a context where design agencies are predominantly the ones leading co-design work, whether it be for government or private businesses or whoever, what is the composition of a design agency's team? And historically, design agencies have been full of predominantly sort of white middle-class, quite educated folks. So if we're leaning ourselves more towards participatory ways of being and doing, surely we also need to look at the makeup of organizations and agencies and really get a sense of how to connect to the people that we're working with and alongside. I think the other question that relates to power is who wants co-design and why do they want it? <laughs> and is this really kind of an elaborate form of coercion? Is this sort of an elaborate way to get people to buy into something that's already been decided? Or is this something that's been set up, authorized and funded with a genuine intent to explore? Because I think that when we're not sort of attuned to power and privilege, sometimes we end up colluding with either intentionally or unintentionally folks who want a particular outcome or want people to change in a particular type of way. And to be quite sensitive to that and to be asking questions at the very start of the process of the person who's requested a co-design process mm -hmm. or funding a co-design process is why co-design? Why do we want this? And do we really understand what we mean when we say this? Because there's been so many times I've started a project, I've sort of planned out a co-design process. And then the person said, oh no, we don't mean that we just want to check our ideas with a group of people and kind of be told that we're already on the right course which is of course not co-design and and can't be thought of as being so mm, i like that putting that effort in at the start to make sure you're on the right course and that can be tough when you're excited about a project and you've got the funding and you sort of have to actually put the brakes on things for a little bit and do that rigor at the very start but it's also not to say that human-centered design, user-centered design, patient-centered design doesn't have its place too. Yeah. We, we are not going to have a context where we can co-design everything all the time. And I'm not even sure that people would want to co-design everything yeah. with us all the time. And there's some sometimes some fairly boring parts of improving systems that need to be done by folks who are paid to do that improvement work mm. i think the thing is not to confuse ourselves and just to be clear and honest and have integrity no matter where we're sitting on that spectrum because it's still important to do consultation well mm. <laughs> and not to just think well we should only be doing co-design and neglect the fact that sometimes we have to consult with people be it for reasons that we're constrained by time or by resource but that what we're sharing with people is a very honest version of this is the level of participation that we are able 
to offer. Mm. These are the kind of boundaries and limits and these are the constraints we're working with. And, and often I've been surprised when I've gone to a group of people and say, we're quite constrained. We'd still like your input and contribution if you're keen to give it. And people have still said, absolutely, we can see that there's still an opportunity despite this being very constrained, there being lots of rules, here is where we would like to offer our feedback. Mm -hmm. And that honesty is actually probably quite refreshing because I think people have got quite a good radar for when people are pulling the wool over their eyes as to the amount of influence they can have. So for someone to be really honest about that upfront, oh, that would that'd be fantastic. I love how in your book and and in this conversation, you unpack all those sort of hidden things that are going on with co-design. Thank you for your awesome work pulling the book together. Where can people learn more about you, your thoughts, your ideas, if they've been interested in what they've heard? So folks can go to www.beyondstickynotes.com to learn about the work, about co-design and about some of the associated types of ideas be it around design leadership or the model of care for co-design they can also follow me on twitter at kelly anagram or co-design club nice and if i pick up your book and i see there's a model in there i just absolutely love it and i want to take it back to my work and use it can i do that do i need to get permission from you kelly what's the story there absolutely so really welcome anyone using any of the models or frameworks in their book as long as it's attributed as where it's come from and what it builds upon I'd also love to see where people are using the work what they're finding helpful and any feedback they have so really welcome people getting in touch but please 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 use the work that's being created the website has a number of sort of free downloads by way of some of the mindsets and some of the kind of reflective tools to help us figure out is it the right time for co-design thank you for listening to this episode of the beyond consultation podcast what did you learn from the show what should we have talked about who else should i interview I would love to hear your feedback. And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, everything from the show is at www.businesslab.co.nz slash podcast. If this episode has left you with a burning question, please feel free to submit a voice message through the link on our podcast page. We can then ask that question of a guest in a future episode. Or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Facebook and I can point you in the right direction. If you want to know when we release new episodes, make it easier for yourself and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Again, thank you for listening. Nga mihi mo te whakarongo.